podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Morning! That's the way to do it. Oh, and you wouldn't believe it. You would not believe it. It is a noble. Oh! Well, he hasn't stood over the line. What do you do there? Refer that to third umpire? Why is that a no ball? I don't want to see that on the big screen, I'm telling you. No balls suck. They are a horrendous part of cricket. Not even the backyard edition of a free hit has saved them. Yet, the ICC somehow found a way to make them even worse. Welcome to Red Inca. Today, my guest is... Adam Collins, freelance cricket journalist and broadcaster. Collo, like me, became obsessed with no balls. For near on four years, we lived at the very top level of cricket where a bowler like Lakshan Sandakan could bowl 40% of his deliveries as no balls and no one would call them on the field and no one would do anything about it. The opposition didn't get the runs, he didn't get the wickets and we just went on shaking our heads in utter confusion as the ICC weren't enforcing the laws of the game. Today, we talk about all of that. Colo, thank you for joining me. Let's talk back foot no balls first, even though neither of us are anywhere near old enough to have been there. They seem to be almost superior in every way to the front foot no ball, except for the fact that bowlers eventually worked out how to hack them. That's right, Jared. Well, that's certainly how it was explained to us growing up watching the Channel 9 coverage. Due to the fact that the no ball rule went from back foot to front foot, I think the very end of Richie Benno's captaincy perhaps meant that he knew more about it than most, but he'd reflect on the fact that bowlers worked out basically had to drag the back foot, didn't they? So that gave them an extra advantage. And I suppose in, in recent years, the, the book from Doug Ackerley, which came out, which talked about the exposure of fast bowlers, uh, putting more energy into their front leg, drew it to prominence again. But yeah, it did get the conversation going. And in theory, you're spot on. I mean, keeping the back foot behind the line of the, not the popping crease, what's the crease that runs along the stumps called? I never actually, the return crease is a more logical place for it to be adjudicated from. But yes, we, we've gone to the front foot as a more, practical way of doing it and partly due to helping the central umpire make their assessment as well. And also it probably changed the game because I think it probably Mm. took us away from swing bowlers and slingy bowlers towards tall and bouncy sort of uh, seam-led bowlers. So it's a very interesting law change that really did change things a lot. And yet in Doug's book, you're right, he talks about, I mean, he believes that it's essentially brought along injuries as well. The other interesting thing about no balls is they didn't always go against the bowler. So Bob Willis, for instance, has a really good bowling average, Mm. but he also, I think he he bowled the second most no balls per delivery of any bowler Mm. ever. I think Patrick Patterson was the worst and none of those no balls go against his figures. So we've had a couple of sort of major changes post-war when it comes to the no balls already. This is in Paul Allett's lovely tribute to Bob Willis in the Wisdom Almanac, which came out today. Paul talks about Bob Willis, his dear friend who passed away last year, and reflects on the fact that Bob's bowling average of 25 in Test cricket would actually be 28 if you included the no balls, which is, uh, I'm not sure whether he's um, taking some liberties there with that, but um, it sounds like that's probably right, given the volume that he bowled. I haven't got the number to hand, but yes, I think that did change things too, when bowlers had to be held accountable for overstepping. And I reckon the first time that it sort of entered normal cricket, the technology, I think this was on the footy show, which is a Melbourne show about Aussie rules football, Mm. when Shane Warne came on as a guest and they showed him the side-on footage. Yes. And they showed him the fact that when he went out on 99, so he never made 100 in test cricket, was caught by Mark Richardson out on the boundary. I think Dan Vittori was the bowler. And it turned out it was a no ball. Correct. (laughs) Goes for it. There's a man out there who's getting under it. And he's got it. 
and Shane Warne tragically finishes on 99. The dire spirit thought to Shane Warne. He's played brilliantly. He's caught going for the slog sweep in the deep, and his wonderful innings ends on 99. Fantastic bowling, Dan Vittori. This finish, this exit from this innings is as big as Sir Donald Bradman's last innings. Mark Richardson takes a huge bow. 99. Daniel Vittori, very well bowled. The crowd going off. I reckon that was the first time that it was a huge deal was made out of the fact that we could actually look at side on and work out if it was a legal ball or not. There are a couple of instances in that same couple of years span. So, yes, there's the famous incident with Warner at the Wacker, which would have been in late 2001 or maybe early 2002. I can't remember what year they played that test match, but in any case, it was there. Earlier that year in 2001, there was a, a one-day series played between Australia, England and Pakistan before the O1 Ashes. And Wakar Yunus on one particular day overstepped a truckload of times and David Shepard wasn't picking them up or wasn't looking for it, one or the other. And the umpires, or the camera rather, which was set up for the third umpire. Now, remember, the third umpire camera was only there from 1993. So before that, mm-hmm. you'd sometimes get the side-on shot, but it wasn't always bang-on side-on, and they didn't make such a huge deal of it because the third umpire, well, A, it didn't exist, and, and B, if it was any role that the, the extra official had, it certainly wasn't to adjudicate runouts. So, yeah, that was a big part of it. So there's sort of two parts to this. One is when we first started seeing bowlers overstep and we throw our hands up and go, oh, how is it possible that the umpire missed it? And then there's the second part to this in 2010, 2011, which is the summer, so the Ashes summer again, where retrospective no balls could be called for the first time. So in other words, what we're conditioned to these days when a batsman's walking off the field and he'll be told to wait by the central umpire through the walkie-talkie and the third umpire will take a quick look at the front foot to make sure that they haven't overstepped. And I think the first one of those, if I recall correctly, Jerry, was Peter Siddle overstepped, I think, at the MCG oh, okay. after they'd been bowled out for 98 the previous day. And it was really salt in the wound stuff that Siddle had overstepped when he was bowling. I reckon it was to Jonathan Trott who went on to make about 150-odd. But it was an early example, maybe not the very first, but an early example of where a no ball was called retrospectively. And suddenly everything kind of changed because instead of it being human error and something that was all down to the central umpire, it became something where the third umpire had some influence. And that's kind of built up as part of the conversation over the next 10 years. It's that period between sort of that Shane Moore 99 and, as you said, the Wacker and Eunice period and 2010-11, which is really interesting for me because essentially once we know that technology is there, we're not going to not look at it anymore. It's the same thing with VAR. Once we have the ability to use VAR in football, it can't not change the system. Do you know what I mean? Mm. It has to then affect it from then on in. And it's incredible to me that it took so long when we had a camera side on to get to the point where we even looked at them retroactively. Exactly. So if you look at it holistically, it's going to be a full two decades from the moment that we had the ability to look at this properly, or even longer if you want to go back to 1993, to the point where we've reconciled it. And I'm sure we'll come to this, but with the Women's T20 World Cup, which finished about a month ago, when they finally took it out of the central umpire's hands and and gave it to the third official. But it's been a pretty long journey, like you say, rationally. If you know something's not right and you can fix it, normally it gets fixed pretty quickly. But it's been yeah a long road to hoe because of the traditions of the game, the tradition of the central umpire having responsibility for the front line, probably some pride and, and then I guess some conspiracy theories about whether umpires were even looking anymore. The sort of the accepted wisdom almost became umpires don't check because they've got the safety blanket of the third umpire checking after the fact and some 
high-profile examples of where central umpires got it wrong, which again I'm sure we'll come to in 2016, to examples which really highlighted what a shambles this whole system was, which meant that the ICC had to consider a solution. And the more interesting thing for me in that period, and that sort of, from 1993 onwards, we could have fixed this, although maybe we didn't realise it was a problem for the first few years, but even so, we had the technology available to us. But the interesting thing is that they actually did make a fairly, I'd say, almost a momentous change to no balls by bringing in the free hit. Mm. So they Mm. knew that no balls were a problem in general, and I don't know how much you've seen of the numbers, but basically from the moment that the free hit came in, limited overs, no balls almost disappeared. They went from being so regular that they were just part of the game to just almost disappearing. And I think England went over 10,000 balls in one-day internationals without bowling one not that long ago. It's what economists would call price signals, right? Like if you change the market, it will affect your behaviour. And I think you're right. It was 11,000 deliveries in a row in in limited overs cricket where England didn't bowl one. And we saw the same thing occur when they did at last bring in the modification, the revolution, I suppose, in giving it to the third umpire. The trial in 2016, it was held over five one-day internationals between England and Pakistan. And across those five one-day internationals, so I guess roughly 500 overs, depending on, I don't know if they all went the full distance, but roughly 500 overs, I suppose, across those games, only eight balls, eight times rather, there was an overstep, which sounds like a lot when you look at the England example, but across what we're conditioned to. And the thing is there is that, of course, there would have been a truckload more than eight bowled in any other bilateral one-day series. It's just simply the case that central umpires weren't calling them. They weren't looking for them. So how many times would have there been no balls in, in any form of cricket, which we just don't even consider again because we don't look for it. Now the responsibility with the third umpire looking every ball means that the bowlers are being held to account. So 2016, when they had that trial, was that before or after the Adam Voges incident? So that's directly after. So the way this happened was that the first test match of the Trans-Tasman Trophy, I think Australia had bowled out New Zealand relatively cheaply on the first day. They had indeed. And they'd lost two early wickets. And Adam Voges walks out, quarter to six, and on nine, he gets bowled by Doug Bracewell. It's a beauty. But Richard Illingworth's unfilled his arm on the field. He's called a no ball. But the problem was, as TV replays showed almost immediately, Bracewell's boot was behind the line. I mean, it was just a brain explosion from Illingworth. He misjudged the situation. It was late in the day. I don't know if it was the case that the white line had been worn down a little bit. Whatever the excuse, the TV replay made it very clear immediately that Voges had been let off big time. I don't want to see that on the big screen, I'm telling you. Well, hang on. If he'd taken a wicket and he'd, he'd overstepped the mark, it will get overturned. Now, why can't they overturn the not out? The this? TV replay made it very clear immediately that Voges had been let off big time. And, of course, he goes on to make 239, drains the oxygen out of the game the next day, and New Zealand are stuffed. Had that not been assessed as a no-ball, Australia are about three for 30-odd, and it's a very different match and potentially a very different series. And Illingworth was mortified. He spoke to the match referee, who I think might have been Chris Broad, who spoke after the game about it as well and said that, The umpire in question is devastated that a wrong decision has had this kind of impact on a game. And that got us sort of thinking, how can you do a better job? And there was a second instance of this at Lords in a game I know you're at, Jared, we were at together. The Sri Lanka-England test of 2016 ended up being a draw, but Alex Hales in the second innings on 57, he was bowled by Nawan Pradeep. And exactly the same thing happened. It was called a no ball by Rod Tucker. Oh, that's a no ball, I think. It has bowled in. The umpire's called a no ball. Whoa, that is tight. 
No, something behind the line there. That's something behind the line. So two times in quick succession. Now, it's one thing to retrospectively assess a no ball when someone has overstepped and a batsman's walking off. It's a different thing altogether to to go the other way. You can't go to a batsman after the no ball has been called. Well, sorry, mate, uh, you actually are out because they've received the call on the field. Like procedural fairness suggests that they have to remain out there. There's no way of fixing it after the fact. So that meant that the ICC had to consider their options. And I interviewed Jeff Allardyce, the czar of cricket at the ICC around then, and they agreed to have a trial of a bit of technology that would throw it to the third umpire. So completely take it out of the hands of the men in the middle and give it to the third umpire who would have a machine to enable him to toggle on the bowler's front foot on the line each delivery. And in the event that he he identified a bowler as having overstepped, he'd immediately buzz the central umpire and that unfurl their arm at that point. So yes, the batsman wouldn't have the benefit of the early call, if you like. I and mean, that's pretty old fashioned as well, isn't it? I mean, when was the last time we saw an early call and a batsman play a shot like that? But yeah. in any case, that got taken away. But the benefit was that you'd never see another situation like Voges or like Alex Hales. Well, I think the early call is a, probably a throwback to the back foot no ball anyway, because in those days, totally. you actually probably had a chance of hearing the umpire do it. Even then, I think it's a pretty risky thing to do. To suddenly go, oh, I think he's saying no ball. I'm just going to swing wildly at this next delivery and hope that's what I started to hear. Well, I mean, we now know scientifically it's almost impossible for anyone to sort of get that, especially as the speed of sound compared to the speed of light, all those sorts of magical science things. So anyway... I think that was already a mistake. Yeah, but maybe if it's a spinner, right? Like maybe you can imagine a scenario where- Spinner, yeah. I'm just trying to think of it possibly, right? But you're right. It's absolutely more about the back foot no ball era or lower level cricket. At the elite level, it's just happening too quickly. What is it? Half a second between conception and completion of a delivery with a mm. with a fast bowler. It's just not enough time. So yeah, I guess in one day cricket or any white ball cricket, there's the free hit after the fact. So when a no ball has been identified, yes, you don't get the benefit- of the early call, but the next delivery, you're getting a free hit. So that was kind of cleared up as well. And so in 2016, they had that trial yep. and it was successful in one way Very. in that it proved that you could do it that way. So late in 2016, the World T20 was on and I was in India and I was staying at a hotel where all the umpires were staying and there weren't many bars. It was Nagpur. There's not a lot of places to drink in Nagpur, Colo. <laughs> so we were in the hotel having a drink and one of the umpires came over to me and said, you know, we've been told basically not to call no balls in test matches. And anymore. I'm not surprised to hear that because why would you? I mean, yeah. if you're an umpire, why would you subject yourself to that kind of reputational damage? Yes, it looks silly for an umpire when a batsman's walking off and, oh, we see now that Jasby Boomer is, you know, three inches over and they have to call the batsman back. Sure, that looks daft for a second, but that's kind of forgotten about. What looks far worse is, well, how it is far worse is for an umpire like Richard Ellingworth who had to endure that all taking place and not having any recourse. Yeah, and so when I chatted to the umpire about it, he said it's not official. It's not like they've said don't call them. It's just they've said, you know, if you can be, what was the word he used? Overly cautious. And he also said that when he started, he was, I can't remember how old he is. I don't want to out him or anything. But he said that in his opinion, bowlers had got a little bit quicker during the course of his shortish career. And he said the quicker the bowler it's just almost impossible to look down, make a really good sound call, and then look up and make a really good sound call, which is, again, a problem that we hadn't had in cricket for a long time. But now that we have so many consistent bowlers, it's very rare that you have a seam bowler bowling at under 80 miles an hour. That wasn't the case even in the mid-90s. Mm, mm. That's right. So it kind of comes back to, if you strip it back, what's the main job of an umpire? Is it to call the foot fault 
or is it to make a good decision at the business end? It's definitely the latter, right? So if you accept the premise of that, the ICC trial, which was a raging success, Jeff Allardyce, again, I spoke to him after the trial. He spoke on the record to me about it in a wide-ranging interview. His attitude at the time was the sooner we get this technology rolled out across all forms of international cricket, the better, given that we already have third umpires at all games and we already have that line being monitored for runouts. We know it works. We saw no no sort of unexpected or unintended consequences uh, during the trial. We back it in. It's good to go. And then nothing happened. Then they started getting phone calls from me every six months or so going, hey, what's going on with this? What's going on with this? And they would kind of deflect in the usual way. But yeah, nothing happened and nothing happened and nothing happened. And then it became apparent that they'd made a decision. Or so we were told. I was told by one of the officials that it was too expensive to have an umpire just focusing on the line. And that didn't really stand to reason. I mean, I don't know. I never really got to the bottom of this, but how expensive could it be to have an umpire watching the same line that is already being broadcast through a camera at square leg or point? It didn't quite add up, but we were told that was the reason why it was put on ice after 2016. And we didn't see any real discussion about it again until 2019. And what's incredible about that for me is that it was three or four years when the governing body who run cricket were not actually running cricket correctly on the field. Like they had made a decision or maybe they had made a series of non-decisions even. And the game was not being officiated to the laws of the game, the playing conditions of the game. That's an incredible situation. And yet, you and I are very obsessed with this. Yep. Andy Zaltzman's another one who's very obsessed with this. Yep. Trent Copeland's another one. You know, there's a few of us out there who really do, it really annoys us. But it should be mentioned all the time by commentators and by cricket writers. It didn't ever seem to really have a cut through. And yet, for me, it was bad for batsmen, it was bad for bowlers, and it made no sense from a cricket point of view. I think it started gathering steam again when we were seeing wrong decisions made upstairs on the front foot or dubious decisions made on the front foot uh, when they were going through the official process. So there was one call at Brisbane uh, late last year. I'm going to struggle to remember who the actors involved in that were, but the third umpire, whoever it was, I can't remember, made the wrong call when Pat Cummins was bowling. For all money, it looked like Pat Cummins had overstepped and he said that he hadn't and in turn the wicket was recorded. But it wasn't so much about that episode. It was more about the idea that whether we should have experts adjudicating the technology. So at the moment, and this is kind of a, an extension of the debate, at the moment we use DRS, what, oh, 20 times a test match, something like that, mm. uh, whatever it works out to be on average. A lot of times a test match when you consider there's a couple of unsuccessful reviews per innings and then the amount of times that both teams use it and get it right, in turn they get to use it again. Given all of that, why is it simply the case that usually a relatively old bloke who may not be that savvy on the technology is charged with the responsibility of making a call based on the technology? Wouldn't it make more sense to have specialist TV umpires, whether they're in a bunker in Dubai or whatever it is, it doesn't really bother me, who have expressly got one role to play, which is to interpret the technology step by step so that that's resolved. And I think that's when the front foot no ball stuff drew into focus again. It was a different issue, but I think that people started talking about it again. And it gave the ICC, who their cricket committee met around that time, maybe a couple of months earlier, they gave the nod to start trialing this again. And they trialed it in a couple of bilateral series early this year, which led towards the decision to roll it out of the global tournament. So the Women's T20 World Cup in February and March for the first time. So yeah, there was this long period of time when it was kind of like, as you pointed out, just don't call no balls, save your ass, don't expose yourself to this kind of mishap. And then they kind of realised that it wasn't sustainable anymore. Like people worked it out over time. It may not have been as much 
noise around it as I would have liked and you would have liked. But I think over time, people realized that this was unsustainable. Yeah. And I think when I would complain about it, you know, on a polite inquiries or a podcast or, you know, the many places that I'm allowed to complain about (laughs) these sorts of things on Twitter, people would say, well, it's a bowler's fault for overstepping. And I was like, yeah, I agree with you. But the batsman's missed out on a run again. Yes. I think the worst one that I saw was Sandakan. So the um, Sri Lankan wrist spinner, why any wrist spinner in the world is bowling no balls, I don't understand. But he didn't just bowl a few. He bowled 40% of his balls in a session that were no balls and that weren't called, right? Wow. And so I went on a huge rant. I must have been on talk sport at the time. Went on a huge rant about it. And the other guys are going, yeah, but, you know, it's his fault he didn't get the wickets. And I said, yeah, but England has missed out on all of these runs. We are not playing to the laws or the conditions of the game. It was so bizarre that it didn't have that cut through. And I think it's just because everyone just sees a no ball as a bowler's fault. They don't see the wider context of how that is affecting the game. I feel sorry for bowlers in this respect because I talked about Jasper Boomer before. Boomer bowls a lot of no balls, right? But... It's almost as though he's conditioned to bowling them because he never gets called. Mm. He gets called after the fact, after taking a wicket from time to time. But in the general run of play, he doesn't get called. So look at the example of young Naseem Shah, who picked up his first test wicket at the Gabba, which was a no ball, retrospectively called as a no ball. Oh, Oh, is that a nick? I think he... Oh, it's given! Want to shape as if he had hit the ground, but no. Naseem Shah, the 16-year-old, gets his first test wicket, and it's a big one. They might just check the front foot. Nassim has been very close. Oh, dear. I think he's over. Oh, the irony. He's lost on no one. The young man from the greatest elation in his cricketing career. He's now goes to disappointment. This will be a big letdown for himself. I remember Michael Beer at Sydney in 2011. Another one who suffered that fate. His first test wicket overturned. On review, of course, Jack Leach last year when he picked up Stephen Smith at Old Trafford, which was a pretty big moment in that series. He oversteps. But why I felt sorry for Nassim Shah is you went back and I think it was the host broadcaster, so the pay television provider in Australia, went back and looked at all the balls that Nassim had bowled in that spell. And he was overstepping most of the time. And again, of course, it's his responsibility to be behind the line. But had he been called the first time, let's say – we were operating in the new conditions where the third umpire is taking care of it. If he's told the first time he's overstepped, he'll make an adjustment. Mm. And therefore, he's not overstepping the second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth time and the seventh time when the wicket finally falls. We don't have that kind of quite ridiculous situation where the batsman's halfway off and all the rest of it. It's being dealt with in the here and now. So yes, it is a bowler's responsibility, but I think the system is geared towards having more no balls due to the way that they haven't been called at all. I mean, remember, Jared, in Adelaide in 96-97, Patterson Thompson playing for the West Indies bowled, I think it was 40 front foot no balls in an innings. Now, you would never see that now. I've got a funny little uh, secondary part to that. So in 2015 on my first tour, as in my first tour covering international cricket, we were on a flight from Antigua to Dominica. And as we got on the flight with the Australian team, I think we were all on the same commercial flight. Craig McDermott brought our attention to the fact that the pilot of the plane was Patterson Thompson. And then Craig McDermott jumps out with, you better not overstep here when landing the plane. (laughs) He sort of (laughs) made some throwback gag to the mid-90s in the test match where he overstepped 40-odd times in that innings. But in that era, and Bob Willis, who you mentioned before, because the umpires were watching the front line, they would just call bowlers. And the amount of club cricket and recreational cricket that you and I have played A lot of blokes got called for front foot no balls, but if you're an elite bowler and you're measuring your run up to the centimetre before play with the tape measure and all the rest of it and the paint and all the things we see, 
and you are just not being called, then why would you think you're bowling a no ball? Why would you think to pull your run up back three inches? And of course, cricket being a game played on grass, which and different surfaces and different angles and all the rest of it means that sometimes if your run up's 23 meters and four centimeters, sometimes it's not quite that because of the vagaries of playing an outdoor game on a surface which can be volatile. So yeah, it does require the umpire to provide assistance to bowlers. And I think they've been let down here too. No, I think you're right. I mean, go back to the free hits point. You talked about the economics of it. Mm. From the moment that we had the free hits come into limited overs cricket and T20 cricket, we saw a decline in the amount of no balls bowled. Someone like Sandakan, he would not be bowling 40% of his balls as no balls if he was being called. He just wouldn't do it. Absolutely. Either he'd be yanked out of the attack or he would work it out. And again, I do understand when fans go, they just shouldn't overstep. And I think that if anything's taught us but that's true. It's the free hit rule because if you're not doing it in a T20 game, you really shouldn't be doing it in a test match. But if we don't have people actually calling them, you're going to continually do it. There's a big difference between an umpire going, I think you were right up on the line there, and an umpire saying, bowl that again, son. And the other thing is, I also don't have a beef with bowlers trying to bowl with their heel just behind the line. It's a game of inches. I mean, cliched as it is, if you've got the size of foot that, say, Mitchell Stark's got, and you can be almost an entire foot further down the pitch when you're letting go of the ball. That's not for nothing. I kind of get it, but that should be a risk-reward equation that a bowler has to make each time they start a spell or each time they turn at the top of their mark that they are willing to run the gauntlet by having their foot right up at the edge of the line and they will know that from time to time they will slide over and they'll be called accordingly. But I think that's fair enough. We're not saying the bowlers, you need to have your whole foot behind the line to make sure. Although, as you say, in T20 cricket, that's what you do see because the punishment for stepping over is so considerable and there's only 120 balls per team. Why would you subject yourself to that risk? It's a bit different in test cricket because, as I say, like you're looking for small advantages in an attritional kind of format of the game. So you might make that risk-reward equation and think, no, I will push up against it. And if you're not being called and not having those conversations with the umpire, then you've almost got no chance. And my conspiracy theory on this whole thing when the ICC pulled the plug for a time there was that if you're the third umpire, just to kind of go behind the curtain a bit here, on the cycle, on the circuit, in a test series, you'll often have three umpires in operation and they'll rotate through in groups of, is it two or three tests, Jared, that they have to rotate through? Two, isn't it? Is it two? I think it's like three umpires for three tests as well. Mm. And they take two separate groups in, in longer series than that. Anyway, the reason I raise that is because it means that you basically are giving every umpire a, quote, week off Mm. during a series to be the third umpire. I'm not saying it's not stressful having to make those close run-out calls or go through the DRS technology, but it isn't an every-ball responsibility in terms of how mentally taxing it is, the way that it is an every-ball responsibility for the central umpire. So you get your quieter week. Now, my conspiracy theory is that umpires don't much fancy having to toggle on the front line for 600 deliveries per day of a test match day because that's fairly mentally taxing as well, which two things in response to that. Fair enough. If I was the third umpire, I'd want to have a slightly quieter week as well. And second to that, then that reinforces my argument that we should just centralise third umpires, put them all in a bunker somewhere, cut down their carbon emissions that the ICC are, are using each year, having that extra person flying around the world, and have young people in there who know the technology back to front, are schooled in it back to front, and you immediately start diminishing the amount of errors made by third umpires, even though they're armed with the technology. How frustrating is it when you see the DRS process gone through and at the end of it you shake your head and say how the fuck did that happen well if you have someone who's doing the job and just doing this job 
maybe a younger person, maybe someone that's got a history with Hawkeye and other technology like that. I reckon that A, we'd have better decisions made by the third umpire and they'd also, of course, have to look after the front line and B, we still wouldn't be in a situation where we're asking members of the elite panel to do a job, which is probably not required of them. Their job's to get the decision right watching at the other end, not watching the front line. Yeah, and also a really important fact that I don't think is put out there enough that most former cricketers who become umpires and most umpires themselves still use Hotmail. So <laughs> I just don't know if anyone who still uses Hotmail should be in charge of any technology at all. Well, this is it. I mean, how many people do you know who, without being too generation wars on this, most umpires are boomers. I mean, most umpires, are <laughs> if they're trying to start a petition about you, they'll accidentally send it to you as a DM or something. like They, they don't know how to use technology. They're old. I wouldn't trust my father to run the third umpire technology in the booth had he been doing that. I trust him to score a game with a pencil in an old scorebook, but I wouldn't trust him behind the dials of DRS because they haven't been brought up with that sort of tactile technology, if you like, the way that people who are younger than them have. And yeah, this will change over time. But right now, a lot of the umpires who are getting around are what? They're in their 50s, probably still a few in their 60s even. Mm, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And also just a basic thing, if you, especially the former player umpires, they've not been in offices and they've not been operating Zoom conference calls and using PowerPoint, all the sorts of things that even someone else who's 45 might have had to do. It is a different world. I just want to move on to the Women's World T20, so World Cup, whatever we call it now. I watch it, but as a fan, my boys were off for some of it. So, you know, watch a little bit, watch as much as I could, but I didn't watch it the way I would a normal tournament. I know you were about to become a father around that time, so you probably had other things on your mind, but you were making videos on it. So I'm assuming you were watching the games. I was. How did it go. It went really well. It went really, really well. And the best example I can give of that is that Elise Perry was bowling no balls and she was being called and she just fucking sucked it up. Do you know why? So Elise Perry's a professional. Elise Perry is an accomplished, esteemed cricketer who, having watched a lot of her career, she does overstep quite a bit. And when she was overstepping in this competition, so in really practical terms, usually what happens is the no ball is called when, let's say, it ends up in the wicketkeeper's gloves about Five or 10 seconds after that, when the bowler is making their way back to their mark or maybe just passing the central umpire, the central umpire will get a buzz in their pocket. I think they've got the detector in there. They'll feel it and then they'll unfurl their arms. So all of this happens before the bowler gets to the top of their mark again. No time did I witness it taking any longer than that. So it didn't disturb the flow of the game. It didn't mean the game went for any longer. And I haven't seen the data and I'm sure someone will crunch this at a later date, but my feeling was that it was still about the same number of no balls that were normally called, which is a good thing. That means that the flow of the game was pretty much the same. It's just that they were accurately called and the umpires were able to focus on the batter's end. And I've got to say, when I went to the previous World Cup for women in 2018 in the Caribbean, there was some pretty poor umpiring across the board. And I'm not saying to the extent that this one small change for the umpires meant that they were better this time. I'm not saying it's completely causative, but it's certainly correlative that this time around the umpiring was much better, much, much better. And maybe that was partially influenced by the fact that they weren't having to at least pretend to look at the front line. They could just focus on their main job and it didn't affect the game at all. So, I mean, if the ICC were looking for validation that they'd made the right call in pushing ahead to this, they've got it. And my only hope is that through the lockdown isolation period that we're in at the moment and as organisations take stock about what's going well and what's not going well and all the rest of it, that the smart people are sitting around a table somewhere saying, right, from now on, every test match, this is being done. I hope that's the next step here. 
Yeah, I mean, for me, I'll be very sad that we won't get as many really, really disappointed batsmen on the edge of the boundary, <laughs> sort of with a hand on their hip. But, you know, if that's what we have to lose, Colo, that's what we have to lose to actually make sure the umpires do the job correctly. I've wondered this, and you'll know the answer. You know how you'd often hear on a television broadcast, oh, well, they can't cross the line. Once you cross the line, you can't come back again. Did that ever actually happen? Did a batsman cross the line only to then find out that the bowler had been over the line? So did we ever end up in a situation where a batsman had to be retrieved from the dressing rooms? So batsmen have come out of the dressing rooms. I think Ben Stokes might have done it in their Caribbean against the West Indies. But by that stage, they changed the playing condition. So my guess is that it had happened before. You generally don't change laws or playing conditions until something happens. Yeah. So my guess is that someone else must have gone off the field and then it'd be like, oh, yeah, but once you've left the field, you can't come back on. So I think they did change that for international cricket. But uh, right. I'm just going off the top of my head because I remember it being a huge deal. I want to say it was at Kensington Oval and he'd gone all the way off. And we were like, well, he's out. And then it showed that he wasn't. Well, he's yeah. Out, yeah. That's right. He, didn't he light up a cigarette, I think, as well? Wasn't there a joke about the fact he had like a pad off or something and he was lighting up a cigarette and then suddenly he had to go back on? You know, I'm sure Ben Stokes is such a great athlete that tobacco and nicotine doesn't even affect him. But I've got a feeling that there was a long story. So if that happened, then I think before that, there must have been a case where someone had left the ground. But one of my favorite things in the world is, to be fair, third umpires or fourth officials trying to corral the very disappointed batsman and keep him out on the ground. Yeah, that's right. And there's one other thing out of all of this, which is related to another hobby horse of, well, both yours and mine, really. So I mentioned earlier about 10-11, the Asher series, where this was first part of the playing conditions where you could call the batsman back. Something else happened during that series, and I'm sure you'd remember this because you were covering it. Well, you were right in the middle of it, weren't you? Right in the maelstrom in 10-11. Alistair Cook was always batting. So <laughs> whenever one of his teammates was using DRS or when they were checking the front foot through the DRS process, they would often find Alistair Cook was about three feet outside of his crease when the ball was being bowled because absentmindedly he would just take off whenever he sort of saw fit to take off. And he was, I guess, the original man candidate. So what they did after that series was that they changed the – running out the non-striker provision to make it more generous to the bowler and stricter on the batsman, which, of course, became part of the MCC laws of the game in 2018 when they mm. – no, 2017, sorry, when they updated the book most recently. So that was um, – October 2017 was the most uh, recent update of the book and they brought the MCC law into line with the ICC playing condition – and the reason the ICC playing condition was changed was because of the side on camera, which was pinging Alistair Cook time and time again and showing that this was um, open to manipulation. Yeah, it's just a real shame that there haven't been enough man cads to actually catch up with that new technology. And in my job as an analyst, you know I'm passing on this information. It's just unfortunately no one will do it for me. <laughs> but thank you very much, Colo, for uh, coming on. And I think we've nailed the no balls as much as anyone can there. Certainly better than the ICC did. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad we <laughs> solved the problem. I'll, I'll continue pestering them until this is part of the game and, uh, yeah, good to go through it all with you. Thanks for listening. You can follow my guest at Collins Adam on Twitter or on his own podcast, The Final Word, or on his other own podcast over on Pinch Hitter about cricket commentary that is starting soon. Also, he's probably usually lurking on a subreddit of Hawthorne Football Club if you need to find him there. Please review our podcast on Apple Podcasts or really anywhere and tell everyone that you've ever met about it. Just send them TikToks or house party invitations, all those sorts of things, just to explain what the podcast is. These reviews and telling people really does help me spiritually and also algorithmically, if that's a word. This podcast is made possible by the people who support us on Patreon. Honestly, this podcast would not exist if it was not for Patreon. So thank you to each and every person on Patreon for helping us out. And Red Inca is made by me. 
Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston is a man with knobs, and our theme tune is called The Prisoner by the Red Crickets. <laughs>